so welcome everybody uh, to the first of this new series of seminars organized by the Social Contracts Research Network. It's a, a series on this idea of the state of nature, uh, whatever it is that precedes the civil society that the social contract uh, inaugurates. And I, I wanted to organize a series of seminars around the state of nature because the more that I've studied it, the more that I've come to the conviction that it really is a touchstone, a crucial touchstone for analyzing not only the way that people have thought about society in the past, actually, but our contemporary society today as well. And so I'm particularly thrilled uh, over the next four weeks to have four international authorities on the subject uh, to speak to us about various aspects of the, this idea uh, of the state of nature. And uh, today I have the great pleasure uh, of welcoming Dr. Alan Levinovitz, uh, Associate Professor of Religion at James Madison University. Uh, Alan's research focuses primarily on the relationship between uh, religion and literature and science, uh, with particular attention uh, to classical Chinese thought uh, and comparative ethics. His most recent book, uh, which is the reason that I wanted to invite him to take part in this series, is called Natural, uh, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and flawed science. Uh, and it, it does a brilliant job, I think, of examining this idea of the natural uh, and its valence in, in contemporary culture uh, and the way that the modern West has divinized nature. And of course, that has huge implications for this idea uh, of the state of nature as well. Um, during the talk, do feel free if you have a question uh, to write a short version of it in the chat. And then at the end of uh, Alan's talk, uh, I will call on people to ask their questions in the order in which you uh, announce yourselves uh, in the chat function. Uh, and Alan's title for today is Hiding God in the State of Nature. Thank you, Alan. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen here, and then I'm gonna do a little bit of throat clearing, and then we'll be off to the races. So, and as I, as I say to all my students, although you're not my students, but I'm still gonna say it anyway, um, if you are, and I understand it's eight o'clock in Australia, so perhaps all of you are in your pajamas, and I do not want to see you in your pajamas, but if, it is, if, if you feel quite comfortable, showing your faces. Um, I, I would love that. It's nice to see a face. It helps to know how people are reacting. If not, totally not a big deal at all. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play from the current slide. How's that going, Chris? Yeah. All right. Um, actually, you know what? There we go. Yeah. Perfect. So my throat clearing goes as follows. First, I'm not going to talk about Rousseau. I'm not going to talk about Dryden coined this term. I'm not going even to talk about Hobbes, although there is a picture from his frontis, famous frontispiece of Leviathan. <laughs> um, so, that's, so if you were expecting that, I don't want you to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, the other throat clearing I'm going to do is that typically I do not like having lots of text in my PowerPoints. It can be a bit, um, you know, it's not a great way to present things, but there are some texts that I, I want to actually do some close readings of, and so there will be a bit more text-heavy PowerPoint than I'm used to. And that's it. I really appreciate everyone coming, and I'm excited to hear your questions and feedback and insights about this topic. Without further ado, Hiding God in the State of Nature. 
And I'm going to begin, of course, with this quite famous <laughs> bit of text, the Unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. And I don't need to remind you of this, but just to, just to do so anyway, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands, to have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth, the separate an equal station to which, and then of course here is the key part for my talk at least, to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. And then if you skip down a little bit, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, I, I happen to think that this is a pretty unusual phrasing here that is being used, laws of nature, and of nature's God. And nature's God is a quite unusual phrasing as well. Now, I'm no expert on Jefferson, and I'm not going to get into his religiosity. But I want to begin with this by suggesting that if we simply look, the kinship between nature and God, and theology, and natural science, if you will, is everywhere. And it is everywhere in political documents. And I want to examine Another political document that was quite influential, and again, I know many of you, correct me if I'm wrong, are, are political scientists, and so it is, I, I do this all the time, I write on things that are not my area of expertise, so I'm happy to hear from people who know more about these things than I do, but there's a book called Volney's Ruins, um, which was actually translated, if, if I'm not mistaken, in part by Thomas Jefferson himself, and it was quite influential on a variety of different figures in the, in the 19th century. And in Volney's ruins, he's very interested in talking about what a state is and why, uh, you know, what, what is necessary for a state, what a good state looks like, what a bad state looks like, and so on. But he also talks a great deal about laws of nature. And we're gonna look closely at some of the things that he says in part because I think they are transparently incoherent. And to the extent that they're transparently incoherent, and yet this otherwise extremely intelligent writer seems to think it's very important that he believe them, I think they're worth our attention. Uh, uh, one of my broader research guides is that whenever I'm reading someone who's very, very, very smart, and they insist on saying something especially stupid, um, I like to pay close attention to why that might be. And so he says, is it not true that the followers of the law of nature are atheists? This is a kind of question and answer genre, of course, typical in the 19th century. And the answer is no, it is not true. On the contrary, the followers of the law of nature entertain stronger and nobler ideas of the divinity than most other men, for they do not sully him with the foul ingredients of all the weaknesses and passions entailed on humanity. What worship do they pay him? Worship holy of action, the practice and observance of all the rules which the supreme wisdom has imposed on the motion of each being, eternal and unalterable rules. And I just want to pause here. Remember, this is a book about how to, how to, how to make a state, broadly speaking. This is about states and the rise and fall of civilizations. And it's important to keep that in mind when he's laying out what here seems to be a sort of theological argument. Um, and you, you may wonder, what, what does this have to do with him? eternal and unalterable rules by which, and of course you can also see the influence of that on Jefferson pretty clearly, by which it maintains the order and harmony of the universe and which in their relations to man constitute the law of nature. 
Was the law of nature known before this period? It has been at all times spoken of. Most legislators pretend to adopt it as the basis of their laws, but they only quote some of its precepts and have had only vague ideas of its totality. And that's why, well, why is this? And basically he says, well, because people didn't, didn't, have, didn't know enough. They just didn't know enough. If you don't know enough about the laws of nature, then you're not gonna be able to fully invoke them or understand them when you're creating a state. And in this, I'm sort of punning on this idea of the state of nature. I mean, in a sense, what is, what is the ideal state according to Jefferson or according to, I, I'm gonna argue later, according to the <laughs> Republican party in 2016, when we look at the Republican party in the United States um, you know, platform, well, the state of nature is, is, is also a state that is natural, a state that aligns itself with natural laws. Um, and further, that those laws are in fact divine. Of course, and I'm giving away the, the argument at the beginning, of course, back, back in the 19th century, it was okay to have divinity in your declarations about the state of nature, and even in the Constitution, you know, or not the Declaration of Independence, you have it as well. Um, it is no longer okay, of course, because we want to separate church and state, at least in the United States, and then, of course, other secular democracies are nominally secular democracies. But what I'm trying to say, and this is the important part, is that by, by having nature and natural in, you can smuggle the theology in anyway. So all that's really happened is that people have deleted words like divinity and, you know, God, but the, but the, but the, the power of the idea is, and, and the way the engine of it is, is serving the same function. Okay, so I'm going to keep going with Volney's Ruins. I'm sorry, it's, it's quite a boring book, but it's very interesting as a, as a, uh, as a, as a way into these ideas. Is there no other law? So I'm going to go into this again, and I'm, I've skipped a little bit because the, the interlocutor started started asking, uh, has started being asked about the characteristics of the of these laws of nature. Okay, what are, what are the laws of nature? Are they uniform and invariable? Oh, yes. Are other laws uniform and invariable? No. For what is good and virtue according to one is evil and vice according to another. And I want to pause here. This is obviously a bulwark against relativism. The idea here is that. That, that a state founded on the state of nature will, will is eternally good. It's always the best form of the state. There's no such thing as multiple states that could be good in different ways. All states need to be formed according to the state of, of nature. That is to say, natural laws, the way things have always been eternally, even though people depart from them. And then we're going to skip down here. What's the character of these? Well, it's reasonable. Okay, that makes sense. And I now want you to think about laws of nature in the way that a scientist today might think about laws of nature. They have to do, of course, with truth, uh, with physics and that sort of thing. So are they reasonable? Yes. Are they eternal? Yes. But then you notice the slippage from is to ought, this famous uh, you know, philosophical idea, whether or not you can go from is to ought. Uh, some philosophers have said that this is no longer interesting, but they're wrong about that. It's quite interesting. And there, here we have good and virtue. And then we go to evident and palpable and facts incessantly present to the senses and demonstrations. You notice here, we've, we've, we've gone lurched from morality to something that would be, I mean, not in this phrasing, but we very at home in a science classroom. And then we go here, past and doubtful facts, equivalent suspicious testimonies, proofs inaccessible to the senses. Again, we're now in the realm of truths, not moralities, we're in the is realm. Sixth character, to be reasonable, still in the truth realm. We're using reason to deduce them. 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be moral, but when it gets down to the seventh character, we say it's the just. Now I want to pause for a second, but these laws of nature are just, they're just. Could they really be laws of physics? I mean, it's a strange thing to say that the law of gravity is a just law or a good law or a virtuous law. And this is the point at which Volney, just as they say, as the, as the kids these days say, jumps the shark because he then makes the argument that in fact, that's exactly the case, that laws, laws of nature that are be at home in a science classroom are also good and just and moral and, and, and and exist in part to discipline humans. And I'm gonna show you this because it's crazy. I know it's a ton of text, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I promise the text is gonna end soon. So what are the laws of nature that all beings are subject to? And he, the person says, well, can you give me some of these laws? And he says, sure. The sun illuminates successively the surface of the terrestrial globe, that its presence causes both heat and light, that heat acting upon water and water flows down and on and on and on, that in certain circumstances, water suffocates and then kills animals. That is just this long list of facts about the natural world. And then from all of those, he goes on to say, wherefore, as all of those in familiar, familiar, similar facts are immutable, constant and regular, so many real orders result from them for man to conform himself to, at which point you might be wondering, what, how does the rotation of the sun, like, well, how does the, how does the sun's, how does the sun have anything to do with what we should conform ourselves to? It's no sense whatsoever. With the express clause of punishment attending the infraction of them or of welfare attending their observance. So again, I want to pause. In what world could someone think that you could violate the law of water flowing downward? And how would you get punished? What would that mean? It doesn't make any sense. And then he tries to explain. If man pretends to see clear in darkness, if he goes in contradiction to the course of the seasons, and now you can probably hear Ecclesiastes in the back of your head, or the action of the elements, if he pretends to remain underwater without being drowned, to touch fire without burning himself, to deprive himself of air without being suffocated, to swallow poison without destroying himself, he receives from each of those infractions of the laws of nature a corporeal punishment proportionate to his fault. Okay, I mean, at this point, I'm really trying to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. I'm thinking, are you saying that the laws of nature mean that you can't try to survive without breathing? Well, I mean, sure, of course. I mean, that's that's... It's, it's, it's so obvious as to be strange to have to state it. And then you would wonder, well, so is he saying, for example, that you shouldn't use a flashlight in the dark? Because that's, there couldn't be a better example of a man pretending to see clear in darkness. Are you not supposed to use scuba gear? Like what, what exactly, how are these laws supposed to guide us? What, are we, what moral teaching are we supposed to take from any of these laws? And he goes on to say that if you follow these laws, you'll be happy and everything will be great, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Interestingly, precisely this bizarre attitude towards the laws of nature it exists everywhere in the present day. It's all over the place, all over the place. Um, and I don't think you can understand it without understanding that, that it is theological. So this is, an, this is a common image, a depiction of God as a geometer. And it's easy to forget, I think, and unless one is in religious studies, unless one's a scholar of these things, like we all are, but many people I talk to, um, often forget that, that religion and science were not separate things, that to study mathematics was also to study God. And if God is good, 
uh, and, and now this is monotheism, right? Although, although in the questions, perhaps we only have so much time, I could take some questions about classical China, which is my, my own area of expertise and has a similar kind of thing. Then, then math must be good. And it also makes sense that if you violated the laws of math, whatever that means, you would be punished in some way. Now, if you're tempted to think to yourself, well, okay, perhaps what these people mean is that if you are launching a rocket and you get the math wrong, the rocket won't work. In other words, you violated the laws of math and you've been punished by your rocket not working. But I'm here to tell you that that is not what these people mean. For one, that's why would you have to say that? It's already patently obvious. Um, so there's this book here, and uh, I'm keeping my eye on the time. Good. There's this book here that I, that I bought at a used bookstore <laughs> because my daughter loves hermit crabs. Perhaps some of you have children who love hermit crabs. I love hermit crabs. There's a beautiful embossed hermit crab on the front of this book, and it's a book that's sold many, 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 many copies. Extremely influential. No one reads it anymore because it's not... Uh, true and it's so it is useless <laughs> to us except as a historical artifact called natural law in the spiritual world and i say to myself what why is there a hermit crap on the cover of this book i'll tell you why in a chapter on animals <laughs> the author says that hermit crabs are bad animals they are examples of degraded animals because hermit crabs if you don't know how they work they don't create their own shells like crabs they wander around and take other shells from other creatures and put their bodies into them and so then this guy says well why does the naturalist think hardly of parasites and and hermit crabs are his example of something that's almost a full parasite why does he, the, natural, the naturalist here, speak of them as degraded and despise them as the most ignoble creatures in nature? And at this point, I'm thinking, my hermit crabs, like these poor hermit crabs, what's wrong with them? What do they do? And he says, yeah, I'll tell you why. He thinks hermit crabs are bad. Like he thinks they're worse creatures. They're bad. Why are they bad? Well, this guy, you know, he's got a very sort of 19th century work ethic that you might be familiar with. They, uh, all animals do need to eat, drink, and die. If under the fostering care and protection of a higher organism, it can eat better, drink more easily, live more merrily, and die, perhaps not till the day after, why should it not do so? Is parasitism, after all, not a somewhat clever ruse? Is it not an ingenious way of securing the benefits of life while evading its responsibilities? And although this mode of livelihood is selfish and possibly undignified, can it be said that it is immoral? And the answer is yes, he thinks it's immoral. He thinks hermit crabs are immoral. Let's sit with that for a second. Hermit crabs are immoral. What a insane thing to say, <laughs> you know? For one, naturalists don't think badly of parasites, you know, ugly animals, animals that do, you know, do gross things, cockroaches, hermit, whatever, whatever animal it is, they don't have a morality. That's not how animals are. Our hermit crabs aren't bad, they just evolved that way. But because this man and others like him at the time were so invested in these ideas that Volney has articulated, that the laws of nature exist as kind of moral correcting and then they, they are imbued with the sorts of, of teachings that humans must obey, he ends up thinking that some animals are better than others, like more, more moral than others. Of course, naturalists don't think this. 
I said, I'm going to keep doing this because I just think it's so crazy. I couldn't believe it when I read it. Parasitism, the naturalist, according to this guy, will say, is one of the gravest crimes in nature. It is a breach of the law of evolution. And here I want to stop. This is really important because it is here where we make the full jump from science to theology. The law of evolution is not merely an explanation of how the hermit crab came to be the way it is. It is also a moral teaching about how creatures ought to be. And according to this guy, because he's really into working hard, <laughs> creatures are supposed to work hard. <laughs> They're supposed to make their own homes. Right? The parasite has no thought for its race or for perfection in any shape or form. It wants two things, food and shelter. How it gets them is of no moment. Each member lives exclusively on its own account and isolated, indolent, selfish, and backsliding life. You can imagine him telling his kid this. You know. Meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, Oh, this is a picture, by the way, of one of the parasitic wasps, which Darwin mentions as uh, counting against the idea that the creator is inherently good because he can't possibly imagine the creator designing something like this. So, okay. So far, so good. I hope I have at least convinced people that for a long time, the idea of the law of nature or the state of nature in its broadest sense, that is the natural world itself, is simultaneously explicable, but also pedagogical. Um, and it teaches us how to live right and how to live wrong. And the whole thing is shot through with, with moral teachings, like don't be indolent or selfish. Don't lead a backsliding life. All the kinds of teachings that people want. And the argument I'm basically making is that whenever someone wants to convince you that their morality is right, they need to appeal to a transcendent force that tells you what's moral. I mean, not everyone, but lots of people like this. It's a very powerful way to make your case. Why should I do this? God says so. Why should I do this? Nature says so, aka God. It's a very, very powerful way to make a claim. And as the scientific world was gaining an explanatory power, it became increasingly important to find in the truths that are being discovered by science confirmation of the morality that people wanted to believe in. What does this mean for this guy? What it means for this guy is that there are certain kinds of religious doctrines that are parasitic, <laughs> like the Church of Rome. He was not very friendly to Catholics, which comes along and steals all of the ideas that were made before it and is parasitic on the previous thinking of people who simply came to these truths by themselves. I don't want to get into his theology, but what he uses this to do is to criticize all of the things he doesn't like. And the thing is, people do the same thing today. If you don't like the idea, for example, that homeless people get free money, right? if you don't like the idea of, as they're called, welfare queens in the United States, one way you can make the case against them is to say that they're behaving unnaturally. They are violating the law of nature. And we know what those laws are because we can simply look to the state of nature and we can see that the, there are that homeless people are a lot like hermit crabs. They don't build their own homes like actual crabs. They go into homes that were built by other people. They are bad in the same way that hermit crabs are bad. Of course, this is incoherent because hermit crabs are not bad. But my, my what I would is unless unless there's someone in the audience who, who thinks they are, in which case I'm, I would be delighted to hear from you about which animal is the most virtuous. So why is this important? Well, as the subtitle of the English version of my book suggests, I think a lot of bad things can come out of this um, in terms of how we view sexuality, 
in terms of how we understand medicine, in terms of how we understand the laws that ought to govern our countries, in terms of how we understand each other, and on and on and on and on. And I'll give you some examples of this. But before I get to contemporary times, I have to do it. I told you, this is Hobbes, here we are, but I'm not gonna talk about him. All I wanna do is point out that one of the metaphors that's quite common is the idea of the body politic. So it's, a, it's a, still today, you have a head of state, so on and so forth. So when Adam Smith is trying to explain why his economic theory is right, he uses a metaphor of the human body. And what Adam Smith does, it's really quite remarkable, at least to me, is he makes the same case that advocates of natural medicine and natural healing make today. What? Why is Adam Smith talking about medicine? This is wealth of nations after all, right? Well, let me show you. He's criticizing how England's commerce works. And this is how he does his criticism. He uses this metaphor, an extended metaphor of, of Britain as a body. And the villain in this metaphor is the overzealous physician, AKA the regulatory state. And this is what happens. Her commerce, instead of running in a great number of small channels, has been taught to run principally taught. That is to say, this is not natural. It is artificial. It has been imposed on the natural state of the, of the body politic, in this case, the economic body. It has been imposed unnaturally on this body. What happens when you impose unnatural things on the body politic? The whole system of her industry and commerce has thereby been rendered less secure, the whole state of her body politic less healthful than it otherwise would have been, because, of course, it is designed by God. Nature is God, and God is good, and if you do things naturally, everything will be harmonious. But, unfortunately, the bad economic planners in Britain haven't accorded themselves with the state of nature. In her present condition, Great Britain resembles one of those unwholesome bodies in which some of the vital parts are overgrown and which, upon that account, are liable to many dangerous disorders, scarce incident to those in which all the parts are more properly proportioned. And now he just goes right into biology, biology and it's very clear. A small stop in that great blood vessel, which has been artificially swelled beyond its natural dimensions, and through which, and now he's just hammering on naturalness. This is the, the entire force of this argument is bound up with the idea that the state of nature is good and violating it is bad. Through which an unnatural proportion of the industry and commerce of the country has been forced to circulate is very likely to bring on the most dangerous disorders upon the whole body politic. The blood of which the circulation is stopped in some of the smaller vessels easily disgorges itself into the greater without occasioning any dangerous disorder. But when it is stopped in any one of the greater vessels, vessels, convulsions, apoplexy, or death of immediate and unavoidable consequences. And he blames the physicians in this case. And as someone who has studied natural medicine a great deal, you will find that in the natural medicine or alternative medicine world, whatever you'd like to call it, the bad things that happen to our body are due to unnatural things, whether those things are unnatural food, whether those things are unnatural medicines like vaccines, whether those things are unnatural screens or unnatural chairs, whatever it happens to be, that's what's wrong. And the remedy can't possibly be more of that, more of the unnatural stuff, medication, or as they call it in the context of cancer, and I'm gonna blow this here, um, cutting, burning, what's the third one? It's, and poisoning, cutting, burning, and poisoning, which is surgery, chemotherapy, and, and radiation. Um, so you create now, and, and again, I wanna emphasize, I think this is totally incoherent. In fact, it's so facially absurd 
that one wonders how anyone could make these cases to begin with. How is it possible that people would think this? How could you possibly think that there's a natural system of, uh, of economics that you don't interfere with? And in fact, one of the interesting things that Adam Smith is faced with monopolies as a counter argument to this claim because monopolies emerge naturally in uh, unregulated states. And you know what he does? It's very funny. He's again, Adam Smith, a brilliant man, but this is profoundly stupid. He says, monopolies are unnatural. And so we have to get rid of them. It's like, really? But they emerge naturally. How are monopolies unnatural? And, and it's very clear that, all, that because of the force of his argument requires everything bad to be natural and everything good to be unnatural, he just has to say that. And so he just says it. It keeps going. It's bizarre. Okay. This is what we do today, everywhere, all the time. As soon as you see it, you will never be able to unsee it. You will be walking around, you will see it everywhere. Perhaps you will even see it in yourself, not in the context of the state of nature, but maybe you're raising a kid and you're like, geez, should I get the organic mattress? Um, you know, in my case, should I raise my child the way the hunter gatherers did is the problem that <laughs> I've departed from the state of nature and that's why my child suffers. And if only I did things the way the law works, uh, you know, it would work a little better. And of course, there are lots of different ways to understand the state of nature. Not everyone understands it as what the hunter-gatherers did. Volney, for example, would say they didn't understand the state of nature because they were ignorant. And you only really understand the state of nature when you know more. Same for Drummond. He would say that hunter-gatherers are, in a sense, parasitic, right? That if they really understood what the state of nature was, I mean, I don't know what he would say about hunter-gatherers, actually. Not the point. Point is, this, this occurs, this archetypal form of... of of rationalization or verification, whatever you want to call it, occurs everywhere. So when people are trying to figure out what they want to eat, they're very concerned that their food is natural. Not everyone, but many people. This is the heuristic they use. Because it's a heuristic, if it's God, if God, they're not thinking of it as God, but if this is divine, then natural means holy and safe and good and pure. So you don't have to think to yourself, well, perhaps the safest foods are not the most delicious foods. Perhaps the um, foods that are best for the world are not best for my health. Perhaps, you know, you're second guessing yourself. But if you just think natural is good, then you can see some, you can eat natural foods and it's gonna be good for everything. It's gonna be good for the world. It's gonna be good for the economy. And you'll find this happens all the time. So for example, people who like to eat local organically produced food, they will never say to you, you know, I love the flavor of it and it's good for my health, but it really isn't economically feasible. They won't say that because natural means God and God wouldn't make foods that are good for your health, but bad for the economy. It doesn't make sense. God's, you know, God does everything right. It goes without saying that you want to put only the very best food on your table, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. When you're at the grocery store, you have all these choices and you couldn't possibly go wrong when reaching for the foods labeled all natural, right? And then at this point you might think, oh, is this a debunking article? Is this an article that says, nope, that's a silly way to choose your foods. You should choose it another way. No, instead the article says, but actually you might be deceived. The labels that say natural aren't really pointing you towards the natural foods. This article will point you towards the foods that are natural, not just natural. It's in fact, this article is doubling down on the idea of naturalness as the heuristic that you should use to choose your food. This is just, again, and I wanna say, I'm showing you things that are just facially ridiculous. <laughs> This is a natural birth taking place in a water-filled bathtub. When I went to Peru to visit the Machiganga to see how semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers live, 
I promise you there were no bathtubs into which they gave birth. Whatever ease of giving birth they experienced, indigenous peoples in general, I actually don't write about this in the book, I should have written about it more, is in part due to the fact that they start giving birth quite young. Um, and so if you start giving birth at 14 or 15, which is something we don't do now because we consider that pedophilia or child abuse to have 14 year olds giving birth is shocking. Or this is fairly common, I mean, digits in 19 is maybe the average age, but you really do have lots of people giving birth quite young. Imagine now it's gonna be quite easy to give birth when you're 20 or 22 or, or, or 30, at 30, you're just popping them out in the field, right? And you actually see accounts of this, um, of people, you're not really popping them out in the field, it still hurts. But it's certainly much easier than if the first time you give birth is at 25, to which you might say, well, is that sort of an argument like the one that Volney makes? Isn't that an argument that the way we ought to give birth is in accordance with the law of nature. And to that, I would say, well, sure, if you're fine with people starting to give birth at age 14, I'm not, not right now, at least. I'm not gonna, the hunter-gatherers can do whatever they want. Not my job to talk about them. So there's obviously dramatic and obvious inconsistencies in this way of thinking. And, and I think it's really important to, to sit with those um, and, and then try to ask ourselves, well, then why is it this is so important to people? I mean, this is just, this is my favorite. I mean, can you believe this? These are natural Cheetos. <laughs> you know, you might think to yourself, well, what, what in heaven, what, who, who in the world, unless you're, and, and if you're in the audience, I'm sorry to poke a little bit of fun at you, but it's fine. We all do this kind of thing. Who in the world goes into the store and says, well, I'm gonna have the natural Cheetos? <laughs> That's a good choice. That though that is Cheetos as God intended them. You know, I mean it's just it's just absolutely hilarious. And yet we do that. And the reason we do that is not only because we want to be able to convince other people that our morality is right and therefore nature is behind it or some kind of, it's been derived from some kind of state of nature, but also because the world is a very, very scary place and a very mysterious place and a very complicated place. And that creates a tremendous amount of cognitive load um, to you to sort of clinically talk about it. I could talk about it in different terms as well, but it's very difficult to deal with. And so when you are in pain or when you are scared or when you are deluded or uncertain, you can come to believe the most astonishingly ridiculous things. I want to suggest this is one of them. <laughs> Okay, well, what's the harm, right? What's the harm? Why not do, you know, what's what's wrong with carrying a crystal with you so it aligns your vibrations? You know, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with uh, crystals aligning your vibrations. I mean, you know, no harm, no foul. But there's a lot of harm that comes from this approach because people still have brains that think logically. And so if you think that what's natural is good, it doesn't take a lot, of, a lot to arrive at the conclusion that vaccines are bad, for example. So here's an anti-vaccination meme still starving, but billions of dollars in vaccines around. The idea is that there's some kind of evil force out there that's violating the laws of nature and giving these people unnatural vaccines when in fact they, you know, what they really need is natural, probably natural food, right? The tubers that, that their ancestors ate. Or for example, um, this is a, a, a quote that raw garlic, this is, this is an idea that it's a health minister, mind you. Raw garlic and skin of the lemon, not only do they give you a beautiful face and skin, but they also protect you from disease. Why would people believe these things? They believe these things because they think 
that nature and God, even if they don't think in exactly this way, are synonymous. And they think that naturalness is synonymous with goodness and purity and safety. It's a very, very dangerous. And I'm just going to give you another example of how this can go horrifically wrong. I don't know if you've been following what happened in Sri Lanka. But in Sri Lanka, a government, uh, the government that came into place, it's very recent, I, I encourage you to look at it if you, if you haven't followed this story, decided to go fully organic. Why? Because of these ideas that naturalness is good are very powerful. And in agriculture, there's a lot of big problems, right? Agriculture is effed up, if you don't mind my saying so. Like, we're really facing some serious agricultural problems. And it's such a complicated problem and so overwhelming that the idea that there's a simple solution where you just do it naturally is, is, is so tempting that, that, that you, would, you would do it. And what happened was it went just, it, it's a hor horrible, it's just tragic. The entire, they were decimated. Their crops were decimated, their tea crops were decimated, their export crops were decimated. It's just, it's wreaking havoc and it continues to wreak havoc in Sri Lanka right now. I mean, so, so this kind of belief can devastate a nation's economy. I mean, this is not, we're not kidding around here. This is not, oh, someone did something irrational. It's not even, oh, Steve Jobs like waited on getting his chemotherapy because he wanted to try natural treatments for pancreatic cancer. This is a nation gone wrong. Okay, present day. This is from the National Center for Constitutional Studies, the United States conservative, religious conservative think tank. Here, they are just explicit about it, right? This is very old school. It's fun to see this on the internet. It's like, ah, these people, at least they're being honest. They just lay it all out. The Bible and natural law. The founders loved natural law and the founders loved God and God is the Bible. Of course, again, any, any scholar of the founders religion, I mean, I go to James Madison University, the idea that James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were sitting around trying to make sure that, they're, that everything aligned with the Bible is, 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 is crazy. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was cutting parts out of the Bible for the Jefferson Bible. He, was, he had no patience for the Bible. This was not a man who held the Bible in, I mean, he did hold the Bible in high esteem, but certainly not in the way that this National Center for Constitutional Studies does. And so, this thinking, again, you might ask yourself, well, okay, what's wrong with this? As long as the laws are good, that's fine. Who cares what the laws are based on? But if you look at the Republican platform, and I'm not going to just rag on Republicans. I'm about to rag on Republicans or the left or the right or whatever. I don't think this is, I don't think this kind of thinking is any more popular in any kind of political ideology. I think it is equal opportunity tempting for everybody um, in all places and at all times. So here's the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. I mean, I don't know how familiar people are with the arguments on, on bearing arms, but people argue that it's a natural right to bear arms. It's a powerful idea, the God-given right of self-defense. This is a great way to convince people that you should be allowed to own a gun and that people who try to take away your guns are unholy and unnatural. They are, they are blasphemers in a way, against what nature wants you to do, which is to be able to protect yourself according to this logic, however you like. Or, for example, and same, this is the same sort of uh, position statement, the cornerstone of the family is natural marriage, the union of one man and one woman. So it's very important that people, that the laws that govern marriage are based in the kind of state of nature. And you'll see sometimes, and, and uh, you see people in natural law, and I, I don't want to get into the weeds about natural law because Natural law theology and natural law jurisprudence have had 1,500 years to try to make sense of their incoherent first principles, and so it makes it so that it takes a very long time to rebut them, and, and you know, when you're halfway done, you got to go to bed. 
So I don't want to get into that, but trust me when I tell you it's incoherent. That's not how it works. It doesn't make any sense, but it's very powerful rhetorically and it's reassuring spiritually. Of course, the rejoinder from those who like homosexuality or favor homosexual marriage or want it to be legal is that homosexuality is natural and there's gay penguins. And according to science capitalized, <laughs> homosexuality can be found in 1500 animal species. Oh, homosexual animals are very important for the survival of the species. And to bring you back to that book that I showed you, essentially to argue that homosexuality is unnatural is the same kind of thing that, that Drummond did with the hermit crab. Now, this is a violation of the law of evolution. Homosexuality is unnatural. We evolved to be man and woman, and that's a violation of it. And then here they're saying, no, actually, disliking homosexuality is unnatural. Disliking it is a violation of the law of evolution, to which I would like to tell everybody participating in these sorts of debates that, the, that they're simply having the wrong debate. It's not about what's natural. It's about something else that's a much more complicated question. And naturalness is simply the, 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 the lazy answer that allows us to feel good about the conclusions we come to in a complicated world. Um, and so that, I'd like to open the floor for questions and discussion. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alan. Um, there's there's so much I'd I'd like to ask uh, in response to that. Uh, if anybody, oh, thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> does have um, a, a question or a comment? Do please let me know in the chat. Um, and Alan, if you could stop um, sharing your screen. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Be, thank you for reminding fantastic. me. Um, okay, we have uh, one question here uh, from Karen Green. Karen, could I invite you to turn on your video and ask your question? Uh, Viva voce. Thank you. Oh, I think you're muted there, Karen, at the moment. Right. Okay. Sorry. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, so I've uh, been thinking a bit about this question. Um, uh, I've been working on Catherine Macaulay, whose history of uh, England did influence Jefferson. Um, and indeed, she uh, is following some natural law and the idea that uh, yeah, that the that I mean, this uh, idea that there is uh, God-given uh, laws of nature, immutable moral truths, and that really republicanism, I mean, her her, her advocacy for uh, democracy and republicanism is within this context of of ideas where she thinks that there is that there's God-given progress, and we're pro progressing politically towards. Um, a better state. So you know, people in the past were ignorant of the laws of nature, uh, which, and, but there is a good God and God has made it possible for us to understand the laws of nature and natural law leads to what she sees um, a democratic republic being, be, which is one in which uh, the common good becomes the common care. So it's a very kind of Christian egalitarian uh, version. And she was an influence on Jefferson. Jefferson very much liked her history in comparison to Hume's. Um, now, as you say, 
I mean, this, <laughs> this is a very optimistic view of the world. And um, this is not quite the question I wrote, but this is a sort of, um, and uh, it's, it's quite problematic in a sense when one sees how deeply implicated arguments for democracy and republicanism are with this idea of uh, a good God-given nature. And the problem is that if you just go for, okay, well, so, you know, nature is indifferent, <laughs> uh, you end up with something more like, you know, Hobbes, Mandeville, uh, maybe Foucault, all right, what are, when you look at the states, that actual political states, well, what have you got? You've just got the powerful uh, imposing conventions on, on the weak, basically. And so, you know, this, this, where, where does one find, um, if you like, the, the, the basis of morality that is assumed within this kind of tradition? Now, I mean, my question was actually about uh, Indigenous people, because I think that, um, you know, in, you don't need God, in a sense, to, to get this conflation between, you know, what, uh, what is natural in the sense of what is, what is prudential to do, given the nature of things. Uh, so uh, Indigenous people talk about the law and obeying the law. And the law is both, well, it's a set of, of conventions, which in the environment in which they are in, actually promote the well-being of the people. Presumably, this, this idea that it is good to obey nature and the law is something that, we, that has evolved because, in fact, it has been successful evolutionarily that we should think not only that it's natural and right, well, that it's that, 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 that obeying the conventional laws, as it were, brings about the good just in the way in which obeying the prudential laws um, is. And so this, this idea, which you've got, got back in Plato as well, that the body politic, you know, that, that governing is a form of medicine, it's a kind of social medicine, whereby the good uh, politician understands how to bring about the good of the body politic, that kind of idea is, is very old. And in, in a way, I think it's one that we shouldn't throw out. So in some sense, I'm kind of saying, look, if you don't, if you don't think that at some level, there are truths about uh, the nature of society and what promotes the good in society, and that these, and, and that it's up to us as political animals to try and understand those truths. Um, if you co totally give up on the metaphor, then you've got, in a way, nowhere to go except might is right. And so you don't want to under undermine it too much. So that's the kind of comment, but it's also, I, I guess, a, a question. So you know, would you like to respond? Sure. Um, so what I would say is, I think, you know, if you think a lot about Jefferson, you're going to be under the illusion that this leads to good governments. 
but there are plenty of tyrannical governments that are based on natural law. The idea, in fact, a great way to justify doing horrific things to people is to tell everyone that's doing them that this is the way to do it. So let's take Hitler, for example, because he's always a good example of a bad thing. It's like Jews are unnatural, right? What do you want? You want the natural German people. That's who you want in Germany. There are the people who belong to the land, right? What is a good citizen? It's a natural citizen. What do you need to do to become a citizen? Actually, you get naturalized, right? So arguments that what is natural is good have been used by everybody. Mao used these arguments. Um, he, you know, I mean, everyone uses these arguments. So I, I would say my, my response is first that, that in fact, it's not true that this metaphor is some kind of, is, is, is generally beneficent. I think it is morally neutral metaphor. And sometimes the people that use it will be doing good things. And sometimes the people that use it will be doing bad things. So then if you grant me that, which I think is pretty incontrovertible, then the question becomes, well, so then what do you do instead? Um, but since the metaphor itself isn't especially good for anything but making people believe something strongly, I think the answer is, Instead of using metaphors that make people very certain, we allow people to live with uncertainty and ambiguity a little bit more. And so we ratchet down the idea that in order to have a good state, we must assert tyrannically, as Jefferson did, really. Um, it's just we just got lucky. It just happened to be good. You know, it's just a good set of stuff. But, you know, you, you don't have to assert that tyrannically and and in a sense right this is what the united states did when it was nation building everywhere you know this is what england does right so you might even have a country that that lucked into um a, a good form of government that then uses its convictions about the goodness of that government to go and decimate other nations and so my answer to your question is that, and this actually, you know, uh, goes, Chris, to something I was saying to you earlier, the answer. Well, so what do you do instead is you chill out a little bit. You relax and you say, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure how this is. Can we all get together and talk it out? In fact, I would say that democracy, true democracy, um, empowerment of as many citizens as possible is more likely the less you have metaphors out there that ossify people's convictions and make them eternal and immutable and transcendent. Um, so, so the answer, I think, is something like humility and uncertainty and ambiguity, just a little bit more of it. That's not an ideology, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to make laws, you know, but you make the laws with due humility. And in fact, there was a really interesting piece in the Washington Post that I highly recommend, uh, I don't know how to find it, but a guy named Carlos Lozada who analyzed the abortion decisions that have been made in the United States. Um, and he goes through them and he notes that basically they become increasingly strident in tone. So the early decisions, you know, Roe v. Wade, um, it, you know, the, the justices are saying things like, this is a very hard question, my esteemed colleagues this, I couldn't, you know, this is so hard. Whereas now the justices are saying are just scoffing at each other, right? It's just manifest, you are manifestly evil. <laughs> Both sides think this, right? And I happen to believe that these sorts of metaphors, God metaphors, or uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know what you want to, I, I don't have a good name for them yet. Um, I think they're quite dangerous. And to the extent that I think we would function better with fewer of them, <laughs> I, I think I think that would be that would be really helpful.
So what do we do? Like, what do we base our morality on? Um, we sit around and say to each other, you know, I'm scared. I don't know. What do you think? Kevin, would you like to come back on that before we, we move to the next question? Oh, <laughs> look, I totally agree that the God, the God metaphor is, is, is incredibly dangerous. And I just think, that, but I do think that the, uh, the whole problem of, um, ah, yes, you know, I mean, I agree with you about arrogance and, and uh, but, but I also, okay, so um, I actually have a little paper in, in a journal called Dialogue and Universalism. In fact, I gave a paper on this kind of topic uh, a bit in an earlier session and, and it is on YouTube, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah. Um, and then I, I tried to improve that my ideas in a in an article in Dialogue and Universalism, which if you like, I could send to you. But um, so you're kind of, you know, in a way you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, my, my thought there, so there are two different things going on. I mean, one coming out of Catherine McCauley, one of the things that she disagrees with in relation to Hobbes is the question of whether we are, if you like, moral by nature, whether there is, as it were, um, whether all political um, imposition is something where, as it, where uh, morality is, is just artificial, okay, and it's a matter of convention, um, and it, in effect what it does is that it, it constrains uh, a nature because once again, you're getting back to nature, a human nature, which is fundamentally bad or fundamentally selfish, okay? So, you know, political uh, institutions are um, just simply uh, whatever, you know, you put up with, you put up with uh, dominion because if you don't put up with dominion, the state of nature is a state of war. Okay, that's the whole. But may I, I actually, Karen? I'm sorry. I just remembered something you said earlier, and I want to. I'm sorry to, to interrupt. I just want to jump in and address this, um, because I, I was I was wrong about something. Or I said something incomplete, and I like that you brought up. Um, you know, the, the fact that God isn't necessary. Right? That you brought up. In, you know, Australia. You know, in, Indigenous peoples, for example. Um, it's not. It's oh, people also use these metaphors to fight back against power. Um, so. In China, for example, the word for the word for natural um, in ancient China, the word for natural is ziran, which literally translates as self-so or so of itself. That is to say, organic, spontaneous. And when you are being controlled by someone, you can say, "Well, this you are artificial. You are manipulating me." And but what's good is what's natural and spontaneous. So, so, so the metaphor can be deployed as a way of escaping from tyrannical control, even though, of course, the, tyr the tyrants are also using this metaphor. But I think there is embedded in this metaphor something good, which is to say that it, that it can allow people who are disempowered a kind of confidence in their own, in, the, in, in what they believe to be true, even if the dominant ideology or the people that are dominating them uh, disagree. And, and, and you reminded me of this. And I just wanted to say that because I think it's a really important thing. So it's not all bad or all good or anything like but, that. But I would think that that is actually also going back to the God metaphor, because if you think that somehow what you spontaneously do, what you spontaneously believe is good, that's because you think that God has innately given you innate knowledge of, as it were, what you have, a, what, is, what is appropriate. So you're 
falling that even that so so what what i was trying to argue was that in fact we have evolved with this very strong uh desire to do what is socially appropriate i mean this is actually a, an idea that you've got in Locke. Locke is worrying about you know what where where do we get ideas from and he and the idea of morality okay he wants to say it's not innate well it, so that the we don't have innate ideas, but we do, but we get the idea of morality because what we see is that in every society, people um, judge themselves in relation to the social law, whatever that happens to be. Now, he, I mean, he, he too believes that, that morality, true morality, uh, is demonstrable because there is a God and what have you. But if you take away the, if you take away the God, you can still have the sociological observation that we are creatures that have evolved uh, to judge ourselves, our own behavior in relation to a law, which is a conventional law, but it's represented to us as a law of nature, because it is, in a sense, you know, we have evolved, as it were, to be social animals and to be social abs animals. Abs to judge absolutely. In relation to some conventional law. And then you have to say, well, okay, so why has this been something that's useful to evolve? And you're quite right about the Nazis. The Nazis take, you know, the social Darwinist picture and say, uh, you know, it's the it's the strongest, it's the it might is right, uh, that that's an, a misinterpretation of of evolution, because evolution shows that actually being socially being socially concerned being moral in the sense of self-sacrifice is something that is necessary but, for social beings and so, let me pause you let me pause you let me pause you there Karen, so, uh, Alan, reasons, if, I one, could, if i could just say just a, a couple of sentences here and then stephanie has a really thanks. fascinating question yeah. in the chat as well so a, a quickly in response to karen yep okay quick yeah so very quickly um, it's not the problem with Nazis thinking that way is not because they are violating the law of nature. This is the thing. There were plenty of there. There are everyone does this. So there were actually people who are you communitarian. There's a, there was a there was a Russian naturalist anarchist um, who who made similar arguments about the reason the communal values are good is because they are natural. And what I'm saying is that we should we need to stop having we need to stop saying that Hitler is bad because he's wrong about what's natural. That's not why he's bad. He's bad because he like rounded up a bunch of people and shoved them in ovens, you know? And that just has nothing to do with, with evolutionary theory. And if it's good to be kind to people or live together, it has precisely nothing to do with how animals treat each other. That's 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 the argument that I'm that I'm trying to make. And I and I, I want to I do want to answer your question, Stephanie. Um oh, sorry, could, I, could I ask Stephanie? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, sorry, Chris. Just turn on your video and uh, Stephanie, would you ask your question um uh, via audio? I wonder if Stephanie's there. If you, don't you, wanna, you, you just go for it. No, no. If she doesn't want to turn on her video, that's totally fine. There's a million reasons why you want to have video on. But I can hear you, Stephanie, and I'd love oh, to hear sorry. your voice. I, I did. I, I'm trying to. Oh, there's here. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I just I was really interested by the idea of how um, underlying modern jurisprudence are ideas of the state of nature and natural law. And I was just wondering um, if in that context, COVID, the virus would be considered unnatural or whether our solutions to the virus might be considered 
unnatural. And I was just wondering how this might um, implicitly affect the state's approach to handling the pandemic. Um, I could see solutions deriving from, from more of a positive law standpoint being based on behavioral measures, perhaps, um, and maybe measures that derive from a natural law standpoint, um, maybe invoking morality in terms of people's sentiments towards each other. Um, so I was just wondering if you've seen, if you've seen any such themes emerging in um, the handling of the pandemic by any countries or any harmful outcomes that have derived from um, such underlying influences of the natural law? Yeah, I love it. Um, so first things I want to say, and I always have to do this because I know the natural law people are always breathing down my neck. The natural law people are going to say, oh, this Levinovitz, she's making a mistake. It is not, it is not the, <laughs> this is not the fallacy of the appeal to nature. Um, they're, they're wrong, <laughs> but they, as I said, have 1500 years of rationalizing uh, how they are not in fact doing what it is that they are doing. Aristotle does it. Everyone does it. It's just, uh, but so I want to put that out there. They're going to say that's not how they work. So I want to bracket kind of academic natural law stuff. And instead I want to say, well, okay, how does this idea of naturalist and natural law um, influence both the perception of the pandemic and how we would approach um, addressing it. So take the lab leak conspiracy. The idea is not a conspiracy, the lab leak theory, you know, I don't know. I don't know what lab it came from. I think for many people, it was very important that this come from a lab and it needed to come from a lab because it must have been some kind of violation of nature. <laughs> this couldn't have just emerged, can't just be this horrible evil, can't have come from a natural place. On the other side, the people who thought it came from, you know, some some wet market or whatever you want to, you know, whatever that theory is, the idea was always like, well, we shouldn't have been eating pangolins. It's unnatural for humans to march into the bat caves and munch on bats, right? And it's those Chinese people with their unnatural eating habits that caused these problems. And so, so the first thing I want to say is that this, this kind of, this way of thinking about the pandemic was everywhere. Or if you're an environmentalist, what was the pandemic? It was a punishment. Nature was angry. I saw this stuff everywhere. Nature's angry at us because we're doing bad things to the earth and the pandemic is the punishment for it. And that's just, it's no different from blaming Apollo for disease. I mean, it's just, it's the, it's the same thing. It just, it just, we can't see it because it's the water we swim in. You know what I mean? Now, I think I take what you were saying about how a government would address it. If I'm not mistaken, were you saying that one approach would would be more morally infused? Like, can you say that a little bit? Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, yeah. Um, so I was just wondering if you've seen in in um, in the government handling of whichever country. Um, yeah, yeah. You find it. Um, um, I was just wondering if you've seen themes of more sort of behavioral measures or if you've seen sort of moral measures like um, think about others' safety versus like, um, you know, stay home because it'll, you know, flatten the curve, which is more like fact based versus like sentiment based, like think of others, oh, protect them. I see. Yes. Um, I. I think all arguments for how you ought to behave are moral arguments. So the distinction I would want to draw is between governments 
developing a vaccine, for example, is an immoral argument. So you could see that as the kind of ease side of the debate. Um, and the and the you ought to behave this way is the ought side of the debate. And I guess I would say that I do believe that there are people for whom in the political sphere, God metaphors are more important. Um, so for some people, it's what they eat. For some people, it's how they want to be governed. For some people, it is how they raise their children, right? These, these metaphors are only present in our lives at the moments of crisis and insecurity, right? And so I would say that the people for whom God metaphors are more important when it comes to politics, I think they are going to be, you know, let me think about this for a second. It's a very interesting question. So, okay, I, I think that's true. Now I'm trying to sort out how, no, at the end of the day, I think it has precisely nothing to do with uh, what kind of action you deploy. Um, because developing a vaccine is going to be like kind of a moral thing where you have to have a vaccine. Why? Because people opt to get vaccinated. Um, so these, these things on a double, the, the, the policy-wise it's not, but I think that to the extent that the people for whom God metaphors are more important are gonna be more strident about their approach to the pandemic, whatever it is. Um, so it's the people for whom this kind of metaphor is central to their understanding of how they ought to function in the body politic who are gonna be shouting loudest about whatever it is they think we should do, whether it's wearing masks or not wearing masks. Um, and, and those are people, and again, I don't mean, I just mean this in a very sort of descriptive way. Those are people for whom the idea of a body politic without a transcendent grounding is terrifying. And you can come to that place in a variety of ways. Um, I, you know, I, I can't speak, I'm no psychoanalyst. <laughs> But there are other people for whom, you know, how is our government justified? Eh, I don't care. How do I decide what to eat? Now that, like, if you don't give me a rule, if God doesn't give me a list of the foods I eat, I'm going to have an anxiety attack, right? Um, and so that's what I would say. I, it's really, it's, I really, I, it's, I'd never thought about this before, so I really appreciate thinking about this. So yeah, I think these metaphors are more important or less important to different people in different contexts. And to the extent that that metaphor is present and, and motivating and foundational in a particular context, I think people are gonna be more intense about the, the rightness of whatever given approach they happen to have decided upon. Oh, thank so, you so politically. much. Politically. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Alan, I wonder if I might jump in with perhaps what's gonna end up being one final question before we need to uh, let you go. Um, and it, it begins with an agreement with what you're saying and then tries to push back a little bit towards them. So the, the, the agreement is that people have perpetually, perhaps pathologically, tried to, to ground all sorts of political positions in the natural order. Um, and so you've got, you know, Louis XIV, the sun king. Why the sun king? Because there's one sun and all the planets go around it. So there's one king, obviously, because we're, we're cutting with the grain of nature and everything revolves around that one central body. Like, how else would you do it? That's how nature works. But, but then I tried to think, okay, well, what's a counterexample to that? And I'm, I'm struggling to think of one. So if you think of the people who are sort of maximally different to Louis XIV, so the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, for example. So, so, so he would say that, that difference is fundamental in reality, as opposed to identity, you know, his overturning of, of Platonism. And therefore, our politics, you know, should, should, should valorize difference. 
uh, or, or think of Foucault, who says that you know sexuality is a 19th century construction. So hey, let's let's construct it differently. Is there anybody who says the way things are is A, B, and C? So let's do X, Y, and Z. I, I just can't think of anyone. Um, and so is it is it a case that however much as you're doing, you see the, the dangers, you know, you've, you've very eloquently sketched that out in terms of, of, of Hitler and others, the dangers of doing this, you just can't not do it. And even if you try to wrestle away from nature, there's going to be a natural metaphor that, that surprises you through the back door. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. So here's my, my answer to that question would be um, that it is not, in fact, about what you use to justify whatever it is you happen to believe is good or right or true. But the I'm struggling for the right adjective here, the conviction with which you argue for it and the dehumanization, I, I'm not sure that's the right word, but I'm gonna go with it for now, of those who disagree with you. Um, and so there are plenty of people out there, most normal people, right? Who are just like, I don't know, this is a really crazy world. And then along comes Foucault or Jefferson or, or Hitler and says, no, it's not, don't worry, I got this, here's how it works. Um, and so if you're looking for examples of people who don't do that, they're everywhere. They're us. They're, I mean, I assume, I don't know. Uh, you know, and, and there are, it is possible, I believe. It is possible. And, you know, there's a sort of paradox here, right? Because I'm stridently arguing against the God metaphor, you know, but that's why I think I also, and that's why I said that, you know, I, was, I like the Karen brought these things up. That's why I said, well, wait, hold on. You know, this metaphor can also do good. Because at the end of the day, what I believe, it's not that the metaphor itself is evil or wrong or anything like that. Metaphors are, I mean, this is, the metaphors are aesthetic, you know, they're ways of trying to grasp a fundamentally ungraspable world. Um, it's that this is a dangerous metaphor and it is an addictive metaphor. And so we ought to be quite careful with it. And we ought to say when we, you know, when we use it, you know, now this is, this is pretty incoherent. <laughs> and I see a lot of problems with this. But I do feel a little bit like, you know, what I mean, that's how we should be talking. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I agree with you, you can't really get away from this metaphor itself, or if not this metaphor, something like it. But you can get away from deploying it tyrannically or deploying it compulsively, or deploying it without a healthy sense of how ridiculous it is. You know, I mean, plenty of people do things that are ridiculous and they and they say, you know, now I know this sounds crazy, you know, but will you please, I don't know, like I turn the knob three times on my door before I leave, right? And that's fine, you know, that's great. I love those, those oddballs, right? It takes, it takes, it takes every kind. But it's when the person is so deeply insecure and fearful about doorknob turning that they feel like the only way they can be safe is for everyone 
to turn knobs like this. And that it's just tremendously important for them to think that this is gonna save them, right? It's so important for them to think this, that the only way to convince themselves of it is as in the fairy tale, right? We're just gonna take all the spinning wheels away. All of them, we're getting rid of all of them, right? I mean, that's really intense, you know? And, and, and that's, I think, that's, I think, that's my, that would be my answer to your question, which is, I think you're right. I don't mean to say, let's get rid of this metaphor. What I mean to say is let's treat it with the caution that's due to it, with a great deal of humility and uncertainty and, and also with a, with a sense of how there but for the grace of God, we can become compulsive about it, right? So when do these sorts of metaphors really insinuate themselves into people's lives? I mean, the world of natural medicine, it's when you face death primarily or when your child faces death. And this doesn't happen to everyone, but you know, I mean, maybe someone in here, I don't mean to get like super heavy here, but, you know, if you, if you, if, you know, I've, I've been to clinics, the natural medicine clinics that treat people who are, you know, are faced with their own mortality. And when that happens, you need a, a lifeboat and, 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 and that lifeboat can be dangerous because it can take you to a place that is going to help you. Um, and so that's, 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 I think what I would say. Hmm. Um if if I could just come back with one sentence, then you you reply to me with one sentence, Absolutely. then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I got I got I got I got I got. This. Okay, don't worry. So, is it then just to try and push that a little bit further? Is it the case that the problem really isn't with the idea of the natural at all, but it's with the way that the the intensity with which people evoke the natural? And could you therefore have equally written a book called Technological? And, and it have made the same moves in it because people can also absolutize and sort of theologize the, the technological. No, I don't think so. And here's why. So there are people that do that, right? Ray Kurzweil, the kind of futurists, um, you know, the singularity. But the difference is that is that natural is more powerful because than that technological one. So they are two sides of the same coin, but one is asymmetrically powerful as a metaphor. And the reason it's asymmetrically powerful as a metaphor is because nature is unbelievably crazy. It's crazy. We don't understand it, that there are organizing forces, whether you are secular or religious, whatever you believe, there are organizing forces that beyond and before humanity that made parasitic wasps and made dinosaurs <laughs> and made the cosmos and, and all, what have we done? I mean, we made computers, I guess they're like pretty cool, but like that we don't have much on, I mean, you know, this force made us, you know? So like, what did it, you know? And so I think there's, there's just, it's just a supercharged um, metaphor. And to something I was talking to you about earlier, Chris, which is my interest in numbers. I understand personally, why this metaphor is so powerful. It's very clear to me why this comes up again and again and again in different contexts, transcultural, you know, like, or transhistorical, cross-cultural. I get it, right? It's pretty obvious to me. I have no idea why people, why numbers are equally powerful or at least powerful in the same kind of way. In other words, why is it the case that going one, two, three is very powerful. Or like people would say like my lucky number seven or like the number 13. So what I'm trying to understand is the, is the engine of metaphorical um, potency in the case of numbers. 
And in the case of natural, but in the case of natural, I get it. In the case of numbers, it's completely mysterious to me. And so I think that if we want to get a handle on the sorts of forces that we are prone to being possessed by, numbers are a great place to start. Unlike natural, which tells me nothing about the kinds of forces, we are, you know, um, and so that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. So I think there's an asymmetry between the two, but, but nevertheless, there are other kinds of metaphors like the metaphors or, I don't know, uh, 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 what would you call it? Um, I don't know, uh, ways of describing reality or whatever that are, that are much more mysterious, their power is much more mysterious. And I'm interested in that a, a great deal because the, the, you know, that's important too. It's like well, charisma. Fantastic. We, we wait with the bated breath to see what you're, you're <laughs> going to say about numbers. Um, and uh, uh, Alan, it, you've been wonderfully generous, both with the presentation and with the, the, the really rich way that, that you've engaged with all these questions. Please, please, everybody join with me uh, in thanking uh, Alan Levinovitz. Thanks, you guys. It, 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 I'm always, it, it always means a lot to be able to express myself uh, to people and, and, and have them be interested in my ideas. Um, it's a cliche, but it's true.